Hello and welcome to the Grace Place NYC. We are a church in the neighborhood of Hamilton Heights in Harlem. Our purpose is to live for Christ, love the lost, and transform our culture. Hey, good morning, church, and thank you for joining us on Facebook or YouTube. Hope you've had a wonderful week and hope you're having a great Sunday so far. Um, Hopefully you got coffee in hand, got a notepad, got your Bible, and ready to receive from God. I believe that uh, the Spirit of the Lord wants to speak to you today. I I believe that God wants to transform you through the ministry of His Word this morning. So if you are ready to receive this morning, stick your hands out like this in receiving mode and say, I am ready. Amen. I hope you're enjoying this journey through the book of Philippians, where we're going verse by verse through this epistle. And if you remember, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison, probably in Rome, uh, close to right before he was martyred for the faith. Um, the theme of this letter is joy. And uh, there, you know, right now, with everything going on in our world, we really need the joy of the Lord to be our strength. Amen. Uh, Japheth did a great job bringing uh, the word last week, praise, dance, and all. And uh, thank you so much, Japheth, for bringing that word, a timely word for us. And this week, we are in part five of I Got the Joy series. And my subtitle today is, Are You a Saint with Complaints? Are you a saint with complaints? And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse number 12, and I'm going to read verses 12 through 18. And it says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul tells the Philippian believers here in this passage to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. We know that Paul doesn't mean work for your salvation because we know from Ephesians chapter 2 that salvation is by grace through faith. It is the gift of God lest any man boast. Salvation is not anything we can earn or accomplish ourselves. It is the free gift of God. We just receive it by faith. We know that. that, that there's nothing you and I can do to earn salvation, uh, but it is our responsibility to walk out what the Spirit of God is doing inside of us, right? Verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Although salvation is not attained by our works, We have free will to choose how we work out the salvation that has been gifted to us. Every human has a choice in giving love to someone, and it's the same thing with God. 
So how do we work out our salvation in fear and trembling? Well, Paul starts out this passage by saying, therefore, meaning uh, because of what I just said, now this, okay? Paul had just written a hymn about how Jesus lived while on this earth. And, and what Japheth talked about last week in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. He said, he said, Christ made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of men, humbling himself to obedience to a cross. Therefore God exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, the name by which every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Paul is saying, in light of how Jesus lived, work out your own salvation by being transformed by him to live as he lived. Right? Paul, in verse 12, isn't saying that once we're saved by grace through faith that we're left alone to figure out the rest the best we can. We just do the best we can, try to figure out God saved us, then he leaves us to try to navigate and journey through this life. No, that's not what he's saying. It, it, he, he, you know, in verse 13, he says, it is God who is working in us to bring about his will and his good pleasure in our lives. The word works that Paul uses there in verse 13 is the Greek word energeo. And that is where we get the word, our English word, energy from. So Paul is saying that God energizes us through his spirit to help us walk out our salvation. It is God's divine energy at work in us and through us. That's powerful, my friends. Paul tells us in, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 that he that began a good work in you will carry it out into completion. So we, we know from that that we are not left alone to try to navigate through this Christian life in and of ourselves and by our own strength. You know, that's why you can have uh, this whole thing about free choice and free will that God gives us, the, 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 the choice to love him. Uh, this is why you can have two Christians that are saved at the exact same time, at the exact same service, and you fast forward five years, and one is still a baby Christian while the other one has matured and has grown in their faith, right? I, I know folks who have been Christians for years and years and still don't have a theology that includes suffering and pain. Um, you know, it, 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 they, they don't have a theology of that, that, that the Christ follower, um, they, they will endure some sort of suffering in their life. They will endure pain right? They don't have that theology. Uh, they serve God while things are going well, but as soon as a prayer goes unanswered or something doesn't turn out the way they envisioned it turning out, they backslide. And, and they go through this, this pattern throughout their entire lives and they stay baby Christians their entire lives because, uh, because they believe that God, once they get saved, that, that God takes away all the pain. He doesn't allow anything bad to happen in their lives. And, and they get uh, they get disoriented every time something happens in their lives that uh, is negative or that is hurtful or, or that was unexpected. We choose with our free will how much we want to pursue intimacy with Jesus. We're not Calvinistic in the sense that God controls and determines every choice we're going to make. We believe that God is in control and that he knows the end from the beginning, but we don't believe that he is forcing us to make certain choices. He has given us the, a beautiful thing called free will and choice. God doesn't make us love him or obey him. If we go back to the book of Genesis, after 
God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden. He told them, you can eat the fruit from any tree except this one. And right then and there, he established free will and free choice. Not because he wanted them to fail, but because he wanted them to freely choose to love him and to obey him. Because here's the truth. If you don't have a choice to disobey, then your obedience isn't genuine. You had no other option, right? If, if you don't have a choice not to love, then your love isn't genuine. It's your only option. God didn't make us robots whose every step is programmed, okay? He's not sitting up in a control room in heaven pushing buttons, making us do certain things, and, and kind of like a video game, okay? That's not how God uh, designed everything to function and work. We have a free will and we have a free choice. You know, how would Priscilla feel if I married her because I had no other choice? All right? Like, what if she found out I married her because there were no other options for me to choose from? She was the only option, and so I just chose her because I had no other choice. I'm sure she'd be disappointed. If I found that out about her, I'd be disappointed. You know, when I chose to marry Priscilla, I said no to every other girl in the world. Just like when she said yes to me, she said no to every other man in the world. And I freely choose to love her, and thank God she has chosen to love me back. No one is making me love Priscilla. It is my choice. Paul says, work out your own salvation. Work out. Say that with me. Work out. As you can probably tell, I don't lift much weights. Um, when it comes to working out, I play basketball, I run, cardio is my idea of working out, but if I, you know, if at the beginning of the year I decide I want to get more toned or Priscilla comes to me and says, Steve, I'd like you to build some muscle. Uh, what do I have to do? I have to lift weights. Okay. Me uh, going on YouTube and watching somebody else lift weights, that's not going to cut it. Right. Me envisioning myself lifting weights and getting buff, that's not going to cut it. Even if I go to a uh, to the local sporting goods store and I purchase some weights, that's not going to do anything. In order for me to achieve my beach body results, my desired results of more uh, a more muscular figure, I've got to lift weights. I've got to work what I already have. I've got to use what I already have. Okay, I got to work out. That's the only way I'm going to get my desired results. Everybody say with me right there on your couch, wherever you're at, at home, work out, work out. That's the only way you're going to get your desired results. Church, hear me. You can't get where you want without using what you already have. That's good preaching right there. You can't get where you want without using what you already have. When God saves you, he plants a seed inside of you. And as you work out your salvation by submitting to the work he's doing in your life, that seed will begin to grow into fruitfulness. God has placed everything for life and godliness inside of you. It just needs to be worked out. You got to work it out. Tell your spouse to work it out. Tell your children to work it out. Tell your imaginary friend sitting next to you to work it out. 
Some of you haven't worked out your spiritual muscles in ages and wonder why your spiritual life is shabby and weak. You haven't been feasting on God's word and have been instead eating spiritual junk food and wonder why your spiritual life is where it's currently at. You're starving of vital nutrients. I recently had my six-month blood work and, and uh, visit with my oncologist. And uh, all my blood work came back good except one thing. It, it's, it's called my ALT, which has to do with my liver function. And uh, my doctor, uh, we're, we're um, on a telehealth call, so I'm looking at her through my computer. And she looks at me and says, Stephen, have you been eating junk food? And I am kind of embarrassed, feeling, um, feeling like my mom had just caught me doing something wrong. And I'm like, yes, why? And she was like, well, this level in your blood work shows that either you're uh, consuming too much alcohol or you're eating too much junk food. And because I don't drink alcohol, it could only be one thing. So it was the food that I'm eating, too many cookies, too much ice cream, um, my, my wife and mother-in-law drag me to the snow cone place uh, every week. So all of these different things are contributing to my higher levels of my ALT. So I had to get a rebuke from my doctor. And she said, you need to, you need to really work on that. And you need to cut those things out. Some of y'all's spiritual levels are out of whack because you're not eating what you should be eating. You're not feeding yourself the bread of life and sipping on the living water you're consuming unhealthy foods that are affecting your spiritual walk. Paul is saying here, work out your own salvation. We are responsible to work out our own salvation, meaning we can't inherit mom and dad's salvation and spiritual maturity. You can't inherit your pastor's salvation or spiritual maturity. You can't inherit your sibling's salvation or spiritual maturity. It is your responsibility to work out your own salvation. It's our responsibility to pursue intimacy with Jesus. It's not anyone else's responsibility to make you pray or read your word or to read books that will help you um, in this spiritual journey of yours. It is up to you. The responsibility lies on you to grow in your faith. Christ has worked his salvation in us and it's our responsibility to obey him and work that salvation out of us. It's what Eugene Peterson, the, the, the author of the Message Bible, he calls a long obedience in the same direction. It means you're not, you're not just wishing for instant results, but you are making right decision after right decision over a long period of time. You're, making little you're taking little steps of obedience to what God says over a long period of time. And as you do that, you will see amazing things happen, amazing growth, amazing spiritual maturity happen in your life. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to shew thyself approved. I'm sorry, it's the King James Version. It's the closest to the version that I learned this verse in. Study to shew thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's your responsibility to make your church family a priority. It's nobody else's responsibility. It's your responsibility to wake up on Sunday morning and to log on Facebook or YouTube and, and join your church family for online church. And once we start having services live again, it's your responsibility to get yourself to church 
and, and to get yourself plugged into the community uh, uh, that you call your local church. We give the call to serve in a ministry, but at the end of the day, it's your responsibility to answer the call and join a team to use the gifts God has put inside of you to serve other people and to glorify God. It's your responsibility to plant yourself in a local church and allow your roots to grow deep into the soil. It's your responsibility. Up to this point, I've talked about working out your own salvation from an individualistic point of view. But within the context of this chapter, Paul is actually talking to the Philippian church about church unity. There was some divisions and some misunderstandings happening in this local church. And so in chapter 2, Paul takes some time to address these issues of, of division and disunity. Um, they had a divided vision, this church did, which is what division is. It's a divided vision of what you think that where you think the church is supposed to go. There, there was a divided vision happening in this church. Listen to what one Bible commentator says concerning this. The plural form of the verb work out and the pronoun your, when, when Paul says work out your own salvation, can be seen as corroboration that Paul's command should not be interpreted in a merely individual sense as a requirement for each individual to work out personal, eternal salvation but in a corporate sense as a call for the whole community to rebuild social harmony. Paul's consistent emphasis on the unity of the church in this context compels us to see that Paul's call to work out your salvation has an ecclesiological reference, meaning it has to do with the church as a whole. It is a call to restore harmony in the church by serving one another. This contrast between an individualistic sense and a corporate sense to the command, work out your salvation, does not posit an antithesis or a, a, an opposing view um, between individual responsibility and corporate responsibility. Restoring unity in the church by serving one another is the responsibility of each individual Christian. So, what would sap this God energy from working in our lives to produce his will for his pleasure? What would suck out the energy of church unity and harmony? What would cause a division and what would cause a divided vision in a local church? What would cause and create a divided energy within a local church? Well, Paul tells us in the very next verse, Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 14, he says this, do all things without complaining and disputing. The NIV puts it this way. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. The Amplified Version says this. Do everything without murmuring or question, excuse me, or question the providence of God. Complaining, grumbling, disputing, and arguing with one another saps the God energy from within us. And that's why Paul is telling the Philippian believers, right after he tells them to work out their own salvation, he then goes immediately into saying, do everything without complaining and grumbling and murmuring and arguing and disputing. Complaining counteracts the Spirit's energy in our lives and in our church communities. Do you know any chronic complainers? Maybe you're a chronic complainer, someone that's 
just constantly complaining about everything? In other words, are you a saint with a ton of complaints? Are you sitting at home watching online? Are you a saint with a ton of complaints? Do you complain about what you don't have? I hate this small house. I wish I had a bigger one. My car has too many miles on it. My boss is so incompetent. If I was, if I was the boss, I wouldn't do, I would do things so differently than he's doing them. I don't get paid enough at work. I'm so sick of this. Why do I got to wear a mask? Why do all these people have to protest? We get the point. Why do they have to keep going? Or do you complain about what others do have? So-and-so doesn't deserve to have the ministry they have. I bet they're compromising to get all the people that they have. I've been there before. I've, I've, I've lived in that space before. When we complain, we're not complaining about our circumstances. Okay, What we're really complaining about is how God provides for us. Did you hear that? When you choose to complain, when you complain about everything, you're not really complaining about your circumstances. What you're really complaining about, if you're a Christ follower, is how God provides for you. I think that's why he takes complaining and grumbling so seriously. It shows a lack of trust and a lack of faith in him to provide. The most famous example of this is the Israelites in the wilderness after God miraculously delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. They were delivered and freed from 400 years of bondage and slavery to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And as they were on their way into the promised land, they developed what I call chronic complaining syndrome. Man, they complained about everything. They, they, they complained about not having food. Then God provided manna. They got tired of the manna, so they, they started complaining about the manna. Why do we have to eat this manna every single day? They complained about having uh, no water. They complained about Moses taking too long on the mountain. And so because they got impatient, they, they, they made a golden calf and they started worshiping it. They complained about Moses' leadership and raised up a coup to overthrow him. They complained and grumbled and murmured so much that God burned with anger and judged them by putting some of them to death and not allowing any of the first generation Israelites besides Caleb and Joshua to enter into the promised land. Complaining is an energy in and of itself that works in complete opposition to the energy God is giving us to work out our salvation. So I want to give you three reasons Paul gives us to not complain. Okay, number one, complaining stunts God's work in your life. Complaining stunts the work of the Spirit, the work of God in your life. Some people are so busy complaining about everything in their lives that they've completely lost focus of what God is doing in their life. Their focus has shifted onto what they don't have or what others do have instead of what God has for them. This is why Paul commands us to do all things without complaining. And all things means all things. You can look this up in the original language. You can look it up in any language you want, any translation you want. But all things means all things. That means parenting our children without complaining. Easier said than done. That means going to work, dealing with difficult people without complaining. This is so incredibly challenging because complaining is our default. It's so easy 
to complain. It's our natural tendency to complain. We can't, we can't not complain in and of our own strength. We need the Spirit's work in and through our lives in order to do all things without complaining. At least I do. And to me, it seems like the more we have, the more we complain. How many times have you heard the story of someone from America that goes to a third world country for a missions trip and they come back amazed because the people in that country, they, they, they don't have, they, they hardly have anything. And compared to that American that went on that missions trip, they, 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 have, they just don't have any of the, the amenities or the luxuries that we just take for granted. And, and, and they just come back to America amazed and in awe because of how grateful these people are and how much they don't complain, even though they don't have very much when it comes to material possessions, right? How many times have you heard a story like that? Uh, us spoiled Americans, on the other hand, with our first world problems, we just can't stop complaining, can we? We're never content. Things are never good enough. We can always point out something wrong with what we have or what we don't have or what with with you know with our phones or our cars or whatever. Whatever it is, we can always find a reason to complain. Number two, Paul tells us to, to do all things without complaining because complaining hurts your witness. Complaining hurts your witness. Uh, for, verses 14 and 15 in Philippians 2 says this. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. The way of the world is to grumble and complain about everything, to not be thankful but entitled. The way of the world is discontentment and greediness. He calls this way crooked and perverse. And when we fall into the sin of complaining and grumbling, it harms our witness. Here's what I mean by that. If you're sitting around the lunch table with your coworkers and you guys are all bashing and complaining about your boss, how can you as a believer then turn around and share the gospel and the love of Jesus with the same coworkers that you were engaged in grumbling and murmuring and complaining with? It's, it's going to hurt your witness. As citizens of heaven, we must be different. We must shine as lights in the world. When you choose to honor instead of grumble and complain, you shine brightly in this world because the way of the world is to complain and grumble and murmur about everything. When you choose to be content instead of complaining about what you don't have, you shine brightly in this world. And then number three, Complaining creates dissension and disunity within the church. Complaining, my friends, spreads faster than the coronavirus, okay? Just like the coronavirus spreads through proximity to people, so does complaining. Just like the coronavirus spreads by projectiles coming out of your mouth, that's why we're supposed to wear masks, so does complaining. What comes out of your mouth will spread to those around you. Maybe, you know, for example, maybe you have an issue with the decision that leadership made. Maybe you have an issue with something going on in the church and you go and you complain to someone in the church and then 
Maybe they weren't even thinking about that, but a light bulb goes off in their head and then they go and tell a few other people and then those few other people tells a few other people. And then all of a sudden you have this group of people in the church that are offended, that are angry, and that are all gathered together and are complaining because complaining is contagious. Let me tell you something, church, and, and I'm not saying this because I've heard anything or anything's going on, uh, but I believe in preventative preaching. Uh, if you have an issue with something happening in the church, if you have an issue with with uh, a decision that was made or, or, or the direction of the church, please come talk to Pastor Priscilla or I. We will be happy to have a conversation with you. We will be happy to fix any issues or clarify anything that needs to be clarified. But the problem happens when we start voicing our complaints to people that can't do anything about those complaints. And that's when it gets um, harmful. And, and that's when it becomes unhealthy. And that's when uh, you start to sow disunity within the church. Here's a word of caution to parents listening today. Be careful what you complain about in front of your children. And, and Priscilla and I, we talk about this all the time. We're not perfect. There are times where we catch ourselves. There are times where we have a conversation and afterwards her and I will just talk and just say, man, we shouldn't have talked like that in front of Boston and Avia. Uh, we've got to be way more careful next time. Be very careful what you complain about in front of your children. Be very careful how you complain and talk about authority in front of your children. Be very, very careful how you talk about the church in front of your children because your children are being molded, shaped, and formed by the words that they hear you speaking. And if we want our children to love the church, how can we then talk bad about the church? If we want our kids to grow up serving in the church and, and attending church and championing the church, and, and we want them to do this into their adult years, then then how can we speak bad about the church and expect them to do all those things? We've got to be very careful how we voice our complaints in front of our children. In closing, the way to combat a complaining heart is by preaching the gospel to ourselves, understanding that we have so much more than we deserve in Christ. We have been adopted into the family of God. We don't deserve that. Our, our sins have been pardoned. The penalty for my sins have been taken and put on Jesus on the cross. I didn't deserve that. Uh, knowing that his grace, his undeserved and unearned favor has been lavishly and generously poured out into my life should help me to not complain about what I don't have. When I understand the gospel and that I receive what I didn't deserve, and, and, and God withheld from me what I did deserve. My goodness, thankfulness and gratitude rise up in my heart. And it's hard to complain when we're thankful and grateful. Amen. Philippians 2, verses 16 through 18. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. When we complain and grumble, we are running our race and laboring in vain. Why? Because we're counteracting everything God is trying to do in us 
and through us. We're sapping the God energy out of us. Joy comes when you know you haven't run your race or labored in vain. Joy comes as you hold on to the word of life. When Jesus returns in glory for his bride, let us not be a nagging wife. Let us not be a complaining wife. Let us not be a a whining bride, but one who works and serves without complaining or grumbling. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for being with us at TGP NYC. You can listen to other sermons on Spotify or wherever else podcasts are available. For further details about the Grace Place, please visit tgp.nyc.